Hello, everybody. Right here at the top of the program. Apologies that this episode is a little more delayed than normal. We had some technical issues, but rest assured, the episode sounds fantastic, and it is really a wonderful one. Today is December 18th. It's a Wednesday. That means instead of releasing our next episode tomorrow on Thursday, the 19th, we're going to go ahead and put it in your feed on Friday, the 20th instead to space them out a little bit. And finally, one more announcement. Our Christmas episode, which will be announced on Friday, is going to come into your feed on Monday, December 23rd. Our goal is to get that in your feed for the holiday week, whatever it is that you might be celebrating. So we really look forward to you hearing it. Thanks again for your understanding. Enjoy this episode where we talk about hero. Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Around the World. Everybody, my name is Brett Stewart. Joining me on this fine evening, David Luzader. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. Awesome, man! <laughs> that was so that was so matter of fact and so soothing in a way. I love it. Uh, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm also well. I'm inspired to try to use a new radio podcasting type voice. Perhaps it too will be soothing. I think that's what I was looking for, is that is that David's got like a Terry Gross thing going on this episode, <laughs> and I sound like I'm going through puberty, because <laughs> I, I, ha- I had all sorts of sickness going on this last week, and I'm sipping some hot cocoa here as we record this episode, so excuse my inevitable, you know, grasps for air, but... We did Around the World this week, which means a co-host had the opportunity to pick a film, an international film, to bring to the panel. It was David's pick this time. David picked the 2002 movie Hero. But before we dig into Hero, I do want to announce next week's movie. Next week is You Did This to Us. That is where you, the audience, get to vote on what we watch. And it was close this time, guys. Oh, it was close. Uh, For a while, it looked like Catwoman was coming out of nowhere and Tremors and Hobo with a Shotgun. Strong performance, as always, but really just never to be the bell of the ball. Because Wicker Man, the Nick Cage Wicker Man, someone that put this in a while back, specified Uh. Nick Cage so we couldn't get away with watching a better movie. Uh Put this in our docket. So again, if you'd like to also vote on these, you can find it social.mgrpodcast.com. Follow us on any of those pages and every five weeks you'll get to vote. But finally, with 15% of the vote pulling out right ahead at the very end, Wicker Man, Nick Cage, uh, grab your bear costume and your honey because we're going to... Is it an island? I can't remember. It is an island. It's an Uh, island. Okay. Get all the bees you can fit in your pants. Right, because we're going to see Wicker Man. Punch a punch a woman randomly. That's uh, that's all I know about Wicker Man. Right there. Oh, oh, have you not seen it? I've never seen Wicker Man. Oh, this will be fun. Oh boy, 
<laughs> oh, this will be fun. Okay. Well, you know what? This could be, there are worse you did this to us. And you, the listener, can make that happen by following us online. But now this week, it's around the world. 2002's hero, 2000 years ago, the Qin Empire is out to conquer the six kingdoms of what will become China. Three legendary assassins oppose the would-be emperor, but one loyal, nameless warrior will combat each of them to prove his worth to the king. David, why are we watching this Jet Li classic hero uh, on Around the World? So uh, when we first started this podcast, I was like, I'm going to use Around the World as a chance to introduce Brett to some pretty rad martial arts films. Did that for a while and then took a little bit of break after the raid and decided, uh, you know what, it's time to start building up to the raid too. So let's look at some other stuff. We had not done an epic yet. And it was uh, really close between this and a movie that will probably show up again at some uh, at some point in the future, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Uh, but I decided to go with Hero this time. Now, Nicole, had you seen this movie before? Oh, yeah. All right. So I'm so the one in the dark. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So this is, as I mentioned at last week's episode, this is something that my my fiance's sister is in love with. She loves this movie more than anything. And I have been the bad soon-to-be brother-in-law that has not gone and watched the movie until I've now been forced to by David. So, David, thank you. As Thanksgiving rolls around the corner in the next couple of days, I'll have something to talk about with her. So oh, perfect. You can avoid so many other wonderful topics at Thanksgiving. <laughs> exactly. By about this movie. Exactly. By talking about Chinese Imperial. No, wait. Okay. So let's <laughs> let's delve into some lighter topics first. Uh, I, I kind of wanted to start with my naivete because I feel like I can be the surrogate for the audience that isn't into Kung Fu or martial arts movies. And the first couple questions I want to ask is what kind of martial art are we seeing in this movie? And I'm doing this for the benefit of the listeners and me. It's primarily Kung Fu. It's primarily Kung Fu. Okay. This is a, this is what is known as a, a wuxia film, which is a genre of Chinese fiction that literally means martial arts. Okay, excellent. And then the second question I had is that one thing I noticed about this movie is that within, you mentioned it's the first epic, and I'm sure the answer to my question lies within that, because there's something that is surreal and almost somewhat borderline comical to me as a as a external party when they are flying through the air and defying gravity in these most fantastical ways and yeah. it's not supposed <laughs> to be funny like it's not kung fu hustle where kung fu hustle would do ridiculous things of the intent to be a comedy Just everyone's flying and i'm trying to wrap my head around that still having seen this movie twice uh, one thing I, I want to say, I, I said martial arts earlier. It means martial heroes. Wuxia does that. That I want to correct myself before people ah. get on me about that. Okay. Um, and yes, I kind of wish that I had uh, had you see this before you saw Kung Fu Hustle because you would get a better sense of the stuff they're parodying with the over-the-top theatrics. Uh, when I say epic, it usually means sort of like a period piece fantasy a bit like the the flying is very common the the martial arts isn't as technical it is more um showy and fantastical it's very showy there's a lot it's it's poetic in a in a weird way like a lot of the movie focuses not just on the philosophical musings of of war 
and what it means to fight and uh you know what you're fighting for and imperialism and imperialism which we'll get into (laughs) but also just the the actions both in and out of combat whether it's these dramatic intense fights or just dudes doing calligraphy is so beautiful (laughs) like it's it's all so poetic it is the most poetic fighting i've ever seen i think that's the best way i can put it well i mean this is um first of all it's it's zhang yimo is the director and he's known for very like arty movies um uh, like raise the red lantern and i believe he directed farewell my concubine and like other sort of historical dramas uh, that are very, you know, prestige pictures in China. Um, so he's got he's got the eye, but he also has uh, Christopher Doyle doing the as his cinematographer, and he's an Australian cinematographer who has done some absolutely gorgeous work. I highly recommend looking him up and going and finding the other things he has done. Um, and then what else was I going to say? Oh dang it! It's I, been a long. It's it's well, been a tough work week. While you're while you're thinking on that, I will say Christopher Doyle's hand in this movie, I think, really helps to cement it in its classic status. Uh, the the visuals are beautiful, but it was also him that had the idea for uh, the different colors to sort of separate out uh, what time period or what well not time period what version of the story we are seeing at this time. Yeah, so let's talk more about those. There's five of them in total. There's what, black, white, red, green, and blue. Uh, David, do you want to give us kind of a breakdown of those? So they don't mean anything, uh, just to be... Yeah, oh. just to put that out there, uh, which I think is good. I think that way it, it keeps us from standing, sitting over here and analyzing everything. It is just that at different times in the movie, when different versions of the story are being told, the characters are wearing out very vibrant outfits of particular colors, which just kind of helps you not get confused at like, wait, when, what's, where are we now? Which version of the story is being told? And kind of also helps keep a little bit of that unreliable narrator status going. Yeah. Uh, things are a slightly, well, sometimes very dramatically, but uh, it, things are never the same the second time you see them. Now, at the risk of becoming the the high school English teacher that tells you the curtains are blue because the main character is sad, um, <laughs> I'm going to do just that uh, because I do agree that like the colors don't mean anything, and maybe even the director has said so. But one thing I did notice with the colors, he in has. particular, two, okay, so in particular, two of them though. So I'm really going to go off into you know off the beaten path here because even he doesn't agree with me. Um, I did find something interesting with the story of sky and uh i'm sorry uh flying snow and broken sword right those are the two that's the couple yes mm-hmm. who's sky then sky someone else sky Sky's is the one played donnie, by yen. donnie yen okay the all right guy my bad okay so flying snow and broken sword they have this relationship they're both incredibly powerful martial artists and they have this love story that we are introduced to later in the film about how they met and uh really 
fostered a uh, relationship around around her desire to to kill the emperor, um, and he was kind of just along for the ride for a long part of that. But we see two different early instances of their story. The first one is red, and it's like this intense, fiery red, and it's it's around the time that the story is based completely in their jealousy of one another. And and red is like a, the jealous color. And that is what it made me think of in the movie was this is a, a collision of red and jealousy and, um, you know, impure ideas that are causing broken sword and flying snow to fight. But then when we see the opposite side of it, which is very, very blue, it is, much more peaceful and that's also something more assigned with blue it's much more peaceful it's much more um loving they both die for what they believe in together and there's something very different about that and the colors strike me as unique in that way yeah that uh vibrant red was something that the director was very particular about and they actually the costumer had to send away to england for a particular red dye and then she had to dye all the costumes by hand to get them that rich particular red that he wanted because he's fussy (laughs) (laughs) man filmmaking before amazon (laughs) well that's still well i mean they don't usually pre-make that sort of thing. Sure, it's not sure. Generally, something you can get on sale at Black Friday for twenty-seven ninety-nine. And when you and when you when you have to get fabric made, you have to get a whole bunch of it made in order for yeah, them yes, to yes. produce it. So, so do you but, like that it's separated by the five colors? Even though, mm-hmm. even though the director himself has said that this doesn't have any sort of symbolism, and I am reading too too much into it. <laughs> I don't I don't think you're like I don't think you're reading so far into it that you're getting like ridiculous to the point you don't have you don't have charts you know if you had charts then like we'd have to start sure, talking sure that. if it was like always sunny in Philadelphia behind me and I'm really just yeah. memeing this out yeah I I love the different colors though I love that each time we return to these characters and are revisiting uh, scene we've seen before, even though what's happening is different, it is it just feels entirely different because it looks different. It's always beautiful, right? I mean, especially like the blue um, segment. It's the lighting has changed. They made the lighting more diffuse, mm-hmm. so it's yeah. all a little bit softer, and there are fewer shadows. Um, so it's a little bit more dreamlike you know and that's the whole sequence with the lake and that's another instance of Zhang Yimou being fussy is they could only shoot on the lake for two hours a day uh, because that was the only time the lake was still otherwise the currents were moving the surface too much they wanted that mirror look to it so they would get up and it was like I think it was in the morning is when it was still so they would get up super early set up for four hours and then film in the very limited time it took it took them a a couple of weeks to do it Uh, three weeks took three weeks wow that's yeah (laughs) that's incredible Uh, i mean that's that's the kind of pull that Zhang Yimou has in china you know he's a he's a beloved filmmaker so he had the the pull to be able to take three weeks in one location to get you know five minutes of film 
So, so question though, is that the most like how do you guys like that fight scene? Because as beautiful it is as it is, I also couldn't take it too seriously because they're. Well, I mean it's because they're floating and flying over the <laughs> over the lake and such. I mean that's that's part of the wuxia tradition is the um you know that flying is supposed to be part of their martial arts prowess it's their they're using their key they're using their energy to propel themselves through the air rather than just you know jumping and bouncing off of things they're they're, they're kind of, of bouncing using it though to propel themselves because, well, because they, they, they do fly <laughs> they do fly but keep in mind that they're like frequently dipping their swords in the water which is what gives them the juju to fly back up in the air again um <laughs> like like they they use them as like little like like trampoline yeah, well, things I mean, it's weird out of periodically you gotta bounce off of something you use your tip of your sword in the water of the lake to bounce back up in the air why not they're not superman brett they need something yeah. to propel them ah <laughs> uh, of course Alrighty. so what is everyone's favorite fight scene then because there are so many incredibly distinct scenes uh with this amazing choreography and people flying sometimes over water sometimes not uh Go ahead, David. Okay, I was going to make you go ahead first, but I mean, it's hard not to say. Uh, I think for me, it's it's between two. I'm leaning a little bit more towards the Donnie Yen fight in the beginning, uh, just be, partially because it's Donnie Yen and because Jet Li and Donnie Yen are both super good at what they do. But I also really like the fight he has with Falling Snow, uh, where you get to see a bit more of it during the, I think, the second iteration when the the emperor is talking about his version of events. Uh, I thought that was a very good one as well. What about you, Nicole? Mm, I mean, the, the one on the lake is beautiful and it's, um, it's sort of the most emotional. It's the most romantic, you know, at one point, um, broken sword pulls off in the middle of the fight because a drop of water has hit the face of falling snow and he's got to go brush it off tenderly. And, you know, just as uh, the nameless warrior is set to attack, he sees what broken sword is doing and sort of twists himself midair so that he won't um, not desecrate but he so he won't be disrespectful to her body by splashing it more or bumping into it or anything so i mean that's that's really lovely but of course from a pure martial arts ass kicking sort of way you got to go with gently and donnie and <laughs> because they're both experts in what they do and they're they're both super good at it and they have somewhat different styles and it's interesting to watch and it's all done with uh, this. It's the most musical, I think, fight of the movie. And we'll talk about the music separately because there's so much going on with it. Um, but they, I was going to say there is actual music being played while they're right. Like there, it is. Fighting. It's it's a um. It's pronounced uh, I believe Kuchin 
uh, which is the the traditional Chinese instrument being played in the background by an old man while they fight. And it looks, for those unfamiliar, it essentially looks like a a steel guitar, right? You, you play it while uh, it's across your lap, and it's got six, seven strings, I believe. Um, six, I think. Um, and it just... It's not plugged in, though, so it's a little different than a steel guitar. But you play it, and you pick at it, and you can kind of do slides on it and that sort of thing. And... Uh, I was going to say, if anybody did watch Kung Fu Hustle when we did that, that they it is the instrument that the two guys use to fight. Uh, yes. The two blind oh, I totally forgot about that. Right. Um, oh, so first of all, seven strings. My bad. Don't want to get hate emails on Kuchin fans. Yeah, but, we're doing great on correcting ourselves this time. <laughs> like, guys, we don't email us. We're on top of it. Right. Uh, but in any case, it's. I, it's first of all, it's a beautiful instrument. If you ever just want to listen to somebody play it, look it up on YouTube, and there's so much going on with that instrument. But to hear it actually played in this scene is so unbelievably beautiful and just accents this fight and transcends it into something totally different with these two martial artist masters. Um, it's just unlike anything I've ever seen in a Kung Fu movie. It might be my favorite, uh, though I would say a close second would be the the green fight between um broken sword and the king of of uh chin because oh with the falling curtains yes because so these these green curtains oh, are cascading down like water around this giant entry hall into the palace that they're fighting in and there's just an ungodly amount of curtains and they keep falling everywhere right there's so many of them and they have one of these fights that is just them kind of floating around um and and floating past one another but it's the most elegant fight to me of the movie i don't know why i just love it so much and i think part of it is because there is emotion with broken sword in that fight where you can tell toward the end of it that he himself is is grappling with whether or not he even wants to kill the king. And I think that's obviously the most, to me, the most interesting turning point of the movie. It's a really good fight. Yeah, it's it's visually, <laughs> visually stunning. Yes. Uh, as all of them are. That's I mean, that's kind of the hallmark of this style of film is, as we said before, it's not about the technicality. It is about... Uh, it, it is about these these sort of big set pieces that the fights become. Now, now, as you mentioned, though, uh, Donnie Yen and Jet Li, they're martial artists who became, uh, well, first of all, they're master martial artists, as, as Nicole mentioned, um, but they're also martial artists who became actors, whereas, I'm going to butcher names here, uh, Tony Long and Maggie Chung? Yes, maybe? It's close. <laughs> well, how do I pronounce good, them? Good enough. Waiting for Nicole to correct mm -hmm. me. Oh, I I believe it's Tony Leung, okay, and Maggie Chung. Yeah, right, I'm I'm I, so. I'm close Leung enough. Uh, so they were actors that had to make it look like they knew martial arts. Uh, can you tell the difference? And does one of them make it look better? This is a question from Nicole. I certainly didn't know that they had me fooled. Um, I I I would say it's maybe a little bit noticeable. Just they are not as. I mean, you open the fight with the two masters going at each other, and then you know everyone else after that is is an actor learning their part. But they're actors who learn their parts, and they learn their parts well. And again, being a broken record, since it's not an overly technical fight, uh, I think they handle themselves 
pretty well. It also reminds me of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. There was someone in there who was not a martial artist, uh, but was a dancer and learned their choreography as if it was dancing. Yeah, and also that's their particular... Oh, go ahead, Zhang is a... oh, sorry. That's, that's Zhang Ji. She she's the dancer, and uh, she plays Moon oh, yes, in this yes. movie. Yes. The calligrapher's assistant. Oh, very cool. Mm-hmm. I, and I also think that their fights, you know, to to both of your points... The most competent, intense martial arts fight in this movie is between Lee and Yen. But the other ones, particularly with, with Tony and Maggie, they are more I keep saying they're poetic, but they're but they're these graceful long strides and floating through midair and there's some slow motion shots. And I think there's enough in there where them not being the accomplished martial artists that some of the other people in the movie are allows them to kind of hide that and, and do fine work as actors. And I could see that because I think there's a lot of scenes, particularly with, um, with flying snow where it is these long dramatic jumps and stuff rather than whipping things all, all, all over the place. Mm-hmm. And the great, Deflecting arrows scene, which there's some great early yeah. 2000 CGI for. Let's you. talk about that. Uh, oh my god! So, the, so the Chin Army shows up to kill the town uh, that all the calligraphers are in. Uh, I what's their nation called? Starts with a Z, I believe. Zhao. Zhao. Okay, so they show up to rain fire upon them with just an unbelievable amount of arrows. Uh, the most, not the greatest CGI, it probably is a scene that holds up the worst to me, but impressive nonetheless for its time. Yeah, I, it looks it looks pretty good, except for when they're deflecting all of them. Yeah, I they would fight say. them. They fight the <laughs> arrows. And uh, it's it's an interesting scene. I remember Claire walked in, my, my fiance walked in when I was watching that, and she just immediately walked back out. That, that lost her, <laughs> completely lost her, that scene. Um, I kind of loved it, though. <laughs> I kind of loved it. And it's not the only time we see a ridiculous amount of arrows in this movie. We see them oh, at the no, very end. Oh, you see it a bunch of times. Yeah, and a, yeah. I mean, a bunch that's, of times. That, that was a big strategy and a reason why, um, you know, Kin was so successful in, you know, fighting his way to unifying china um it was you know having that many archers who were very well trained very well coordinated and just like rain (laughs) this rain our arrows will blot out the sun rain arrows coming down where it's just not avoidable and they're not they're not like skinny arrows like if you went to like an archery camp today they they're these skinny little you know fiberglass or carbon fiber things that weigh almost nothing these are like wood you know wood dowel hefty arrows and they will go punching right through your skull if they're falling from 100 feet in the air is there something to be said that a culture that is otherwise infatuated with honor there's something kind of lacking in honor when your warfare tactic is just firing an endless barrage of arrows into a defenseless town well you're talking about war as a a country with you know 
drones that drop bombs on people i don't oh, know that I'm we not, can talk about that i mean <laughs> sure sure and i'm not i'm not going to make that parallel but i i, I found that interesting you know, you're, we're talking about personal honor versus, uh, and part of their personal right. honor is being versus found. Versus conquering a country. Right, exactly. It's found in sort of their national identity. And it's like, it is for the honor of my nation that I will fire a thousand arrows upon my enemies. And Interesting. All right. Uh, All right. I can see that. that. With a bow that I fire while I am sitting on my butt. Yep. <laughs> One guy straddles his legs up in the air. So at this point, uh, if we haven't already been censored by the Chinese government, it's certainly coming because we're going to talk about Chinese imperialism a little bit. And uh, and they're big fans of this movie. And it's not hard to imagine why. Uh, and, and that's what kind of got me toward the end of this movie and made me feel a bit odd watching it um, because... Toward the end of this movie, we come to the conclusion that our nameless hero decides not to kill the emperor. That instead, uh, he will let the emperor execute him as a, a show of his power to not be compromised by an assassin, to help unify everyone there, to then go on to unify these six kingdoms and create the Great Wall of China and a really big canal I'm blanking the name of, and all these very important advancements that lead uh, to the imperialistic overthrow of, of, of East Asia with China at the forefront. And it, it it's so gung-ho for Chinese imperialism at the end of the movie that it kind of throws me because the the moral ends up being it's okay to support a tyrannical overlord as long as it's in their heart that they want to unify like it's okay to unify is with a tyrant and i think it's dangerous territory at the end of the movie well i mean yeah i i certainly i can i can see that perspective i mean you know nominally in the film the reason that the nameless warrior ends up going along with it in the end even though for you know 90% of the movie he's planning to kill this guy um is that he realizes that you know this man has enough strength and enough love for the country or, you know, at least some, his some version of the him. country. Yeah. His version of the country that he is. Once it's unified, there will be peace. There's been war for going on for decades, if not centuries. And, so many of the of the common people have suffered as a result. They've got nothing to do with any of it, except they're just in the way of these nations going to war that they're just like enough, you yeah. know, so maybe it would maybe it's a good thing to settle if it means fewer people die. <laughs> yeah, it you know, it yes, he was. Uh, tyrannical in the sense of being this this conqueror who would not stop but as nicole said it china was constantly just at war and it wasn't just him it was every state and country and, and principality just trying to kill and conquer one another and you know this guy came in and was like hey we're all one now all right kids stop it stop it <laughs> 
I mean, don't make me turn this country around. Yeah. I mean, you could also say the same for don't make me turn this wagon around. It's the American movie manifest destiny, right? Like, I feel like there's, there's something there to the sense that it does to me in, in some sense, um, gloss over some of the less unifying aspects of falling under a more authoritarian rule to unify your different districts and countries. Because I, I did some reading on this, this emperor and I'm, Oh my gosh, be people please email in because I'm trying not to be ignorant uh, because I don't know a ton about Chinese history, but to my understanding, there are a, a lot of qualms with the, with the first you know, emperor of China. There are, there are things that are cemented into the framework of him building public structures and, uh, and unifying language and currency and trade and getting rid of feudalism and all these different things. But then there's also like, Oh yeah, but you know, Confucius said he was burning and killing scholars and he would go on rampages against, you know, innocent towns that had once wronged him in some capacity. And there is that very tyrannical rule side of this. And the movie doesn't ever show you any of it. And I feel like that <laughs> might be a little bit of a problem. It makes well, you feel too, th- too sympathetic for him at the end. Well, like, of he, course, he the movie's a not going to show it. The movie's not going to show it. Are you kidding me? What? You think China's going to be like, yeah, go for that? Well, of course, of uh, course. And that's why I said I think the Chinese government loves this movie. Because, um, of course. But but I, he literally sheds a single tear uh, when thinking about how, oh, my gosh, this beloved assassin finally understands my heart. And there's just something that rubs me the wrong way about that. Um, but I, I do think, as you guys said, like, you know, maybe the nameless warrior sees the, the, the betterment of the common people through this unification. We're also dealing with a fictionalized version of history right. in this movie. You know, we're not, I know he's, he's based on that conquering emperor, but events are different and i you know this version is shown to be a much more uh caring and you know a man who does what he must for his people and you know definitely not the truth but for the sake of discussing this movie you know i think i think we're allowed to just discuss the the version given to us while acknowledging very clearly history is not uh that clean (laughs) or nice yeah, yeah. No, you're 100% right. I just find it interesting when looking at a movie like this because you have to also think about, you know, is this something that the Chinese government looks at? And particularly in more Maoist China of the last, you know, half century, uh, the through stages of, of Chinese history, it seems like they've reevaluated this particular emperor time and time again. And in more recent reevaluations, it's been kinder and kinder. And you have to wonder that when a government then is looking at this from the eye of censorship, is this something that can help, you know, means to an end of a propaganda machine that is very prominent in communist China? And and I just found that interesting. And I don't think it takes away from how artful and, and beautiful and stunning this movie is. And to your point, David, I don't think it could have gotten made any other way. Um, it is hard to make movies in China, but it's something to think about. And I think it's important to think about. Yeah, it's one of those things, too, that as we get further and further away from events in history, we view them much differently, um, where it kind of becomes, I guess, easier to look at like, well, this person accomplished this and this person accomplished this while because, 
you know, there's so much happening. We can't learn everything. You're going to miss uh, maybe some of the not so great parts. Yeah. And, and to the point of the director, um, I'm sorry, what's his name again? I can't say the name. Shang Yimou. I struggle with these names, guys. Every around the world episode. Um, but to his own point, he made, he made a point in, in, in an interview I read where he said that he hoped that when this movie came out right after 9-11, an American audience seeing it would hopefully feel some of the peacefulness of, of that, that the nameless character feels at the end of the movie. He thought that there might be some sort of respite in that. And I can appreciate his sentiment of trying to make a movie that is resolved with peace kind of at the end of the movie, even though that peace does come at the price of continued war. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I get, I, I get where he's coming from, but I feel like he made a movie deeper than he wants to believe he made. Isn't that every filmmaker? Not every filmmaker, yeah. <laughs> but doesn't that happen to a lot? It's, it's a lot of the movies that we've seen. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's very artful. It's very lovely. It's obviously, you know, the very controlled directing style. Um, but you do still get some very passionate acting from your from your actors and it's there's something to be said for a simple storyline. I mean, even though this does, you know, it's a takeoff on Rashomon, which is, you know, the classic Kurosawa movie where you get four different retellings of the same events from different points of view and you have to try to figure out for yourself what the truth is. Um, so this is several different retellings of the same events. Um but it's it's fairly basic but there's something to be said for just sort of immersing yourself in stories like this you know it be it, the story being simpler lets you pay attention to all the details right and mm -hmm. david put in our docket you know this is a simple story with few characters elegantly told and it really is just a couple characters we've only really talked about uh, the the emperor or the king at this time, our nameless hero, the couple, and Donnie Yen. And I don't think I'm missing anyone else. Yeah. There are only three named characters in the, the whole movie. Like you said, you have the nameless hero, you have the king, that's, just, that's kind of their names, and then you have uh, Snow, Sky, and Broken Sword, which... And Moon. Oh, and Moon. Yeah. Is, is Moon named right. in the movie? Yeah. She is. Yeah, yeah. She, I think it's just, it said once. Go yeah, home, often. Moon. Go home. <laughs> oh, Moon. Um, yeah, but they, like, those are the only ones, uh, you know, there's a ton of other people that are shown in the movie, but, you know, you don't, you don't have, like, all oh, the stubborn general who's going to come in. It's like, I, I just really appreciate how stripped down it is in terms of characters. Um, especially because it's revolving around this one story again and again and again. It's just, it's so easy to follow where I, th I feel like some directors could make this very convoluted 
and sure making it overlap on itself and and make the characters be confusing but this is just you know who everyone is kind of from the go and i just i really appreciate how simple everything feels because that allows the emotions to really show yeah certainly i've said this before about different films we've watched but i do think it holds true here as well that i was watching this movie and i'm watching the choreography and really fights that feel more like ballet at times than they do fights and i mean that in a positive way and the music which we'll get to in a second and i couldn't help but think that you could probably make this like an opera like this could be something performed on stage in a really unique way and that can only happen if you do have a simple story with elegantly told characters that are fully fleshed out. And we get that through each of these characters. At no point at the end of this movie did I necessarily feel like I didn't understand the motivations of any of these characters. Um, perhaps with one exception, I did want to get your guys' thoughts on this. Uh, in the final moments between the Nameless Assassin and the King, the Nameless Assassin has his epiphany that he doesn't have to kill the King. Um that he can instead sacrifice himself to help unify China. Why, aside from dramatic tension, is there something I'm missing about why he has that epiphany at that moment? Because I feel like Broken Sword laid it out for him. I feel like Broken Sword had this figured out like an hour ago, and now Nameless is just now catching up. Uh, Nameless is still struggling with it all throughout their conversation. He... Even though it's it, laid it, out it's, for him, is, is it personal anger? Then is that what it is that he finally is able to put no Nicole? <laughs> I think uh, the the intent um, is that he changes his mind in the end because of the scroll, and the oh. king has his back to him for a long time, and he's contemplating this scroll that has the character for sword on it, and. He's determined, you know, these stages of being a warrior are involved in the writing of this character and saying that broken swords, the the calligrapher's true ideal is not for the first stage, which is for where anything can be a weapon, or the second stage where you're able to slay your enemy at a distance without a weapon, but the third stage of to no longer desire the weapon and that that is the last stage, the final stage of being a warrior. Hmm. And I think that is what finally changes the nameless warrior's mind is if that's truly the warrior's path, then this would be a good time for him to choose to, to put down the weapon. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. I I was just blanking on oh, Bro- Broken Sword. Broken Sword uh, does explain this as well to Snow, who does not have the she same relationship. Just yeah, no. she doesn't buy it. So I think I think it is that kind of extra push from the king there that helps him uh, click in with the ideals that Broken Sword was was going on about. Man, though, as long as you're talking about. Uh flying snow not getting it talk about one of the sadder couple deaths in a movie Woof. oh boy <laughs> impaling yourself Isn't upon the sword that he is impaled poetic. on it is beautiful and poetic but i 
was kind of glad that somebody actually did die in this movie because when it was revealed of like he has a technique that'll make it look like I killed him, but they're really gonna live. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we're doing this. <laughs> we're going this route. Yeah, and they die on top of this glorious rock, and you know someone's got to go clean that up later. But they're up there on the same sword, and it's 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 be- it's I guess beautiful. Um, an interesting death. It, well. It's and they're both wearing white, which is sure in East Asia. Uh, it's, ruin it's a color clothes. of death. Right. Um, but no one really bleeds in this so, movie. I mean, there except is the color symbolism. In- yeah, I noticed that this t- this viewing. I hadn't noticed that before. The- is that there's a lot of stabbing, but no but no blood. blood. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> it's uh, Sky at the beginning bleeds. Yeah, and the red. I thought it was just like the corner of his mouth or something. Oh no, no, it's uh, it's when Snow kills Broken Sword, right? And in that retelling of the story, when she stabs him through the wall, he goes down and is bleeding in like a puddle of his own blood. Like that, you actually see that is the only time which which you see blood, which further reinforces to me that like the the red era of this movie is definitely a more aggressive, jealous, you know, uh, part retelling interpretation of their relationship um but you don't really see it anywhere else uh it's it's not it's not certainly not a gory movie or anything like that no and i dislike pg-13 violence sometimes because of this i the most egregious one to me and this has nothing to do with this movie but we're talking about it so i'm going for it the dark knight rises (laughs) there is a scene where they are having a big war in the middle of the street. It's the police versus the bad guys. And Talia Al Ghul, as it has been revealed, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> gets in this militarized vehicle and she's like, kill them all. And they open fire. And the guy who was like the police officer who was not quite on the side, but goes there at the fight at the end to really be heroic is lying on the ground. No <laughs> wounds on him zero wounds but he's dead and it's just like apparently he he died of i don't know boredom <laughs> he just like <laughs> fell over and decided this was it or he's like really hoping like maybe if i just lay here nobody will notice it but you know if he's dead he didn't die from anything man david held it in for 94 episodes but not an episode longer <laughs> dark knight rises yep, couldn't let it <laughs> I had to talk about it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy that this movie doesn't take that route. It, it, it's it's a much, much, I think, cleaner movie because of it. Um, now let's talk about that music. It's performed by the by the China Philharmonic, and it's it's breathtaking, and I and I love everything about it, and it's so beautifully orchestrated. Uh, I did find out that there is a song called "Hero" that was performed by Fei Wong, who is. Uh, referred to fondly in China as the diva, which is a good thing. It's like it's like people calling you know Michael Jackson the king of pop or whatever. And they love Fei Yang in China. Oh my god! I went down a rabbit hole and she is their Madonna, and that's probably a better analogy. But she's adorable. No, she's adorable, and she's got this beautiful voice. And I listened to the song, and it's a really nice song that could have done well somewhere in this movie, but the U.S. version doesn't include it. And I don't know if that's because there was a, a licensing issue or a rights issue. There, it must have probably been that. Um, but it's worth a listen if you've never it heard must it. Have been. Because I mean, Miramax used to love slapping a, you know, sappy ballad on the end of international movies. 
how great would it have been if the credits start to roll? You know, you have this beautiful score fade out and the credits are beginning to roll and Bonnie Tyler's holding out for a hero <laughs> just starts playing over the credits. Oh my God. Dun, 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 yeah, and, and there's something that like every once in a while you can take like a beautifully orchestrated movie and add a piece of... Uh, not even necessarily pop music, but uh, just anything with vocals, really. Anything with vocals that isn't choral or something like that. And it's very rare you can have a, a piece of music that then fits in with the rest of the movie. And I thought this did that really well. Like, I don't know where they used it. I want to get a copy of where in the original release of this movie the, the song is used. Because I know it's not just like an end credit song. They use it in the movie. So... Let me know. It's probably listeners. way in the background somewhere in like a, a either a love scene, you know, a love scene between Broken Sword and Flying Snow right. or somebody being sad somewhere. Yeah, or it's it's definitely like a melancholy <laughs> love song that like transcends into, you know, pop anthem bliss. So but check check out I the mean, hero I song. Did, yeah, I did want to talk about the music just because it's it's so gorgeous. It's the composer is Tan Dun, who also did the music for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and is sort of the definition of lush. He loves these heavy, deep strings. Uh, they had Yitzhak Perlman doing violin solos oh, really? in this movie. Huh. Um, and in some of the fight scenes, you'll hear this percussion in the background, and that's actually Kodo, which is japan's biggest taiko troupe um which if you've never seen taiko treat yourself you know <laughs> go look them up watch something it is not just a it's not just musicianship it's athleticism involved in being part of a taiko drumming troupe it's amazing which is traditionally japanese it is yeah. yes it is japanese so. Yeah, it, but I thought it was cool, and it sounds super cool when they're fighting to hear that the percussion going in the background. It's just like, oh, 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 there, you know, it kind of builds up the excitement. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. I mean, everything about this, this soundtrack to me is just lush and beautiful, and it fills the scenes, and and it matches the tones of the five different distinct phases of this movie that we've talked about that are also, you know, accented by the color choices. So all around, I think one of the most beautifully orchestrated films we've seen here on the show. And another element I wanted to talk about as we begin the wrap down here, a couple housekeeping items. Uh, first of all, this was released two years later in the U S uh, it took a while for it to actually get its U S debut in 2004. Now it was presented quote unquote by Tarantino. Tarantino went to Miramax who of course he has a relationship with and said, you know, I can, I love this movie. I want to help improve the box office draw, slap my name on it. Um, and they did just that. And I kind of just wanted to call that out because this is the second or third time we've run into an international film. I think Suspiria being maybe the last time where, Tarantino just loves it so much that he feels the need to then use his clout uh, in the U.S. to elevate it. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, good for him. I don't think he had anything to do with Suspiria, though. <laughs> Not Suspiria. What was it then that he... We watched it. And <sighs> we watched... 
Tarantino presents. Um, Googling for Brett. Uh, (laughs) Do and Foley work. I know he's done. I know he slapped his name on uh, exploitation movies before. Like he he has Quentin Tarantino presents Switchblade Sisters. Right, right. No, no, it is um, Thunder Productions. Yeah, no, he he went on this whole like endeavor with his with his independent movie theater to show Giallo movies and raves about Suspiria and wants everyone to watch Suspiria. So, oh yeah, he doesn't he he like owns and runs the or programs the New Beverly exactly something in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just kind of cool. I thought I thought that'd be a fun tidbit to throw in there. And then as well, Nicole, you found something interesting that there was a debate at Miramax about whether the English title should be hero or heroes. Do you think they chose the right one? This was really interesting to me and it had me kind of rethink the movie is is in a way right like is our nameless uh, assassin really the only hero or or are there other heroes that help him get as far as he gets? Apparently, it wasn't an issue in China because in Mandarin, it's the same word for both the singular and the plural. So, um, you know, they we really had to try to figure it out, like on the symbolic level, which would be more appropriate. <laughs> what is there mean, only man? if there is only one hero, which one is it? <laughs> what do you guys think? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think I don't. I, I think it kind of makes sense because they're presenting him as this hero when he first shows up, regardless kind of how things break apart, and he is this hero at the end. And there's other characters that he encounters on the journey, but I think if it's about this one character's journey, it makes sense for it to just be hero. Nicole. <sighs> I don't know. I guess I I would lean more toward thinking the plural was just because if it weren't for Broken Sword and his uh, argument for not killing the king who is out to, you know, conquer all the kingdoms and create an imperium um if it weren't for him making those arguments to the nameless warrior, then would he have changed his mind? Wouldn't he have just gone ahead with his plan to assassinate him and let the ships fall where they may after that? I think I align closer to that in the sense that you're right. Broken sword is, is the voice of reason. If, if you believe that is the right thing to do at the end of this movie, as the nameless assassin does, he doesn't get there without Broken Sword. And I don't think Broken Sword gets there without Flying Snow. I I think that his story arc is very much one of learning from her and then creating his own ideas out of that, out of following her blindly in the battle before he realizes what he needs to do. And I think both sides are equally valid in some ways in this movie. So I'm, I'm inclined to agree that, particularly because every single, if we're to call them each heroes, uh, the three the three martial artists that he encounters before going to see the king each are so distinctive in their fighting styles and just in everything about them that they feel like these distinctive heroes right so i could see that 
being a play to that. But again, to David's point, even at the very end of this movie, the the credit roll talks about the hero. Uh, So it's very clear that he is the hero of the movie at the end of the day. So, but if I, yeah, it's a very interesting idea. Uh, definitely email us to let us know what you think listeners. Now I'm running, my voice is running on low. So we're going to go ahead and close this show out. Uh, guys, is there anything else you want to mention about hero? Uh, sexy, sexy, Tony Lung, but we can (laughs) talking about him in later movies coming up. So, (laughs) righty. Ooh, there's a hint of the future. Uh, David, any closing thoughts on your pick for hero? Sexy, sexy Tony the Young. Uh, <laughs> no, I I think that if you have been traveling along with our journey to see martial arts films, then I hope you enjoyed it. And if you haven't been, what's wrong with you? Join along on our journey to watch martial arts films. Watch Hero. Yes, absolutely. In fact, when this comes out, I'm going to go ahead and put an article up on our website that collects all uh, several of the martial arts movies that we've done. So if you want to be able to listen to them in one kind of playlist, easy to, easy to look at space, you can go ahead on over the Tilting Windmill Studios and do that. Quickly, where can we find everybody on Twitter? Should everyone want to follow along with our musings as we continue? You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. David, what about you? You can find me at Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. And Unicol? Um, it's at your word, Wiz, but I haven't tweeted in about eight months. So you can check our Facebook page at um, facebook.com slash Podcast. Absolutely. You can also find us on Twitter. Just search Podcast, And you can find all of these links, including the link to email us at social.mgrpodcast.com. That'll do it for myself, David, and Nicole. We'll see you next week when we watch Wicker Man. Wicker Man.